it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. We're back in action now. I'm sure you didn't take any time off because so much is taking place. Uh, Byron York will be our chief political correspondent and Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor. He's going to bring some insight because we're now uh, on the cusp of beginning this whole election season. Uh, we're off following everything, including breaking news about a budget deal. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Text hopefully this week to be able to get that out. Everybody will have time to be able to read it and go through it. No one's going to be jammed in this process. We've got to have a Democrat Senate, a Democrat White House, and a Republican House to be able to go through this. So this agreement has to work. Everyone's counting on this actually working. Senator Langford. Speaking out on Fox News Sunday, are two major deals looming in Congress? And will the Republicans, especially the Freedom Caucus, be on board with either of them? We're talking about the budget. We're talking about the border. The outlines come in your way. Number two. You can't have a contest if you see politics as an all-out war instead of a peaceful way to resolve our differences. All-out war is what Trump wants. Unbelievable. Warning to Joe from Buddy Barack. You are underestimating the power of Trump. As Biden goes full Hitler on his speech on Trump on Friday, his message, his game plan. Number one. You look at those numbers, it's really hard to imagine how Trump is going to do anything except sweep Iowa. You know, Ron DeSantis gets 200 people, Trump gets 7,000. That sort of tells you something. It does. Newt Gingrich, who has seen it all, closing arguments as Iowa is just one week away. Front runners are all over the state this weekend with their final message. We have that and the challenge of the Trump trials coming your way. So that's just it. I'm, uh, there was a, a report over the weekend that Ron DeSantis uh, expected to do poorly uh, in Iowa, and that night would re- stop campaigning. I don't see, see that happening, number one. I think DeSantis will do fine. I, I, if we're to believe the polls, and I always say that. We can't choose a pick and choose if polls work or not. But these polls have been pretty consistent with Trump with 30, 40 point lead in Iowa and Ron DeSantis solid second. But now Nikki Haley moving up, although she's made three significant uh, gaffes over the last two weeks. So the question is, will DeSantis back out? Is it uh, make or break for him? For me, I don't see any way for him to do should do that. Why? He's got enough money seemingly for a while. And with the Trump trials coming up. You don't know what's going to happen if the public sentiment towards the president will change, if the polls are actually accurate, if South Carolina and Super Tuesday will be not so super formal, although things look the other direction like they will. I mean, look at his trial schedule right now, January 16th, the uh, E. Jean Carroll civil de- defamation suit. I don't really think that's going to resonate with anyone. Uh, number one, she had her accusation serious, but you don't even remember the year in which it happened. January 29th, the pyramid scheme class action suit. No one knows what that's about. On February 6th is the Nevada Republican primary. On the 8th, oral arguments for the Colorado ballot case. What's that about? Colorado kicked him off the ballot. So the Supreme Court's going to hear it. That's going to be beginning. And again, he'll dominate the news cycle. Now, March 4th, that documents case takes place. A federal case on the, excuse me, on the January 6th case. 
But that's scheduling appeal. I don't think that's going to happen in March. Because remember, they appealed that he was immune from prosecution because he was president at the time of January 6th. And that's got to rule. And then when they do rule, then so both sides got to reset depending on the ruling. So originally supposed to be on March 6th, the day after Super Tuesday. So maybe not. Super Tuesday uh, is March 25th, I should say. Um, Super Tuesday, yeah, is March 5th. And then March 25th, the New York State criminal trial on that whole Stormy Daniels situation. And then you got the classified documents trial supposed to start in July. So when all that happens, does the four-point Trump lead change? And if I'm Nikki Haley and I'm in contention leading up to the convention, I'm sticking around. If I'm Ron DeSantis, I have the money, I'm in contention. Not John Kasich. I'm sticking around. About him dropping out, here's DeSantis yesterday. Cut one. Trump said he uh, heard a rumor last night at his rally that if you don't beat him and come in first place in the caucus, that you're going to drop out. Would you like to respond to that rumor? That's a lie. Totally made up. And, you know, what, when people, you know, fabricate these anonymous sources and do it, what, why he's saying that is because he wants people to somehow think, oh, you know, why should I go in negative 20 degree weather to help? No, you should show up because, you know, we're the one that can get the job done for this country. Uh, but that report is categorically false. Right. Uh, So he was pretty common saying that. And we talked to him last week. He does. You know, listen, he hasn't been trailing uh, in a long time. He's on it. He has never lost a political campaign. And he's coming off a huge victory as governor. And by almost all accounts, he was the most prepared for a pandemic we knew very little about and made almost all the right decisions, really helping boom the population in Florida and help him walk away in a purple state with a massive election win. Now, on the other side, there's President Biden. President Biden essentially spent $40 million over the summer to push Bidenomics. You know what happened? It actually lost popularity. Then he wanted to push democracy. You know what happened? It didn't resonate. Now he's because the only thing resonating, according to his uh, think tanks and his polling, is Trump. Make Trump unelectable. Don't even talk about yourself. Don't talk about infrastructure. Don't talk about how professional you are. Don't talk about how great the economy is because no one buys it. You should learn that. Talk about how evil Trump is. But is it smart to empty the kitchen sink on a Friday afternoon? You cannot get any more. You cannot get any more. You can't get any angrier. You can't get any more extreme than some of these statements that he was making. Listen to this. Cut 13. Trump is wanting as the denier-in-chief, the election denier-in-chief. Once again, he's saying he won't honor the results of the election if he loses. Trump says he doesn't understand. Well, he still doesn't understand the basic truth. That is, you can't love your country only when you win. Cut 11. You can't have a contest. If you see politics as an all-out war instead of a peaceful way to resolve our differences, all-out war is what Trump wants. Okay. If you listen to his speech, it was he's half Hitler, half the devil, and he was screaming through a lot of it. He might be angry, but you went to three years and not even mentioning his name, and now you're going to mention it all the time. Good luck with that. You know, the same thing with January 6th. You wore it out. Now... You did it again on the anniversary. You're going to hold on to that. Now you're going to go after Trump and you say he uh, needs to be prosecuted. 
Now all the Democrats from the civil trials to the criminal trials got 91 charges, countless civil trials. And people see especially the ridiculous Alvin Bragg case, and now you see the politically motivated, jealous Alicia James, uh, Letitia James case where they're trying to take all his wealth, $340 million. And a lot of people are saying, okay, what are you so afraid of? You have gone over the top. You might not like everything Trump's done in business, but there was a reason why he was lauded and, and excelled for a while. Didn't mean he didn't take any risks and didn't suffer any losses. But it means to attack his wealth when there is no debt to pay, no insurance company, no bank that's out of money. That's enabled him to dominate the news cycle, marginalize his opponent's message like Haley, Christie, and DeSantis, and Vivek, I guess. And without doing interviews, without doing town halls, without doing many appearances, by being in the middle of the storm of news, he is dominated. So most everything they've done has not worked because by going after him, they've gone so over the top, they've actually made him a sympathetic figure, not saying he's innocent of everything. And if anybody's life up for this type of scrutiny to withstand it, that's not in the Vatican. Here's Sarah Ishker, uh, used to be a Trump uh, supporter, not anymore, with the dispatch now on ABC. Cut 18. Mitt Romney's saying, look, this is done. He was the only person in history to vote to impeach a person of his own party. And he's like, January 6th is not a winning political message for Joe Biden. People have formed their opinions on it. He needs to find something else. They've already sort of abandoned the Bidenomics thing. I think we'll see probably a third message coming from the Biden campaign at some point. Yeah, it's done. You could say, oh, my God, he knew about it. Now, yesterday over the weekend, uh, Dan Scavino, his longtime aide, came out and said, I, I wish Trump did more and described situations where they told him to get in front of the camera and he didn't. Okay. Same thing. We get all these leaks to these cases. We get no leaks to the tr- of the Biden investigation on anything. But we're getting all these leaks. January 6th, you just kind of keep on living off that. Well, people look at the last few years and they just say he has put the world on, on fire, destroyed our economy, upped our debt, and it's now us against these evil BRICS people this acronym, this this new coalition out to dethrone us as a power and get us off the world dollar, which would be devastating to our economic situation. So Tony Gonzalez says, listen, with all the problems I have with January 6th and he was out there on the front lines, it was absolutely a riot, but it wasn't an insurrection. I'm still voting for him. Listen to this exchange. Cut 21. Donald Trump wasn't responsible for January 6th. Uh, the anger in this in, in, that was built up by people that no longer believe in the system are, are what was responsible. And, and that hasn't changed. More and more people do not believe in the systems. And, and you got to sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. But you have to believe in our institutions. Uh, I look at it through the lens. That was a dark day. And I never want to see January 6th happen again or something like that or riots across our country. How do we how do we calm everybody down? How do we bring this country together? Uh, I'd also say in my district, which is 70 percent, 42 percent of the southern border, 70 percent Hispanic, people aren't talking about January 6th. They're talking about feeling safe in their homes. They're talking about food, putting food on the table, keeping their kids safe in school. Right. And that's why Senator Tom Cotton said, you know, I voted to certify the election and I was keeping my powder dry until we found a nominee. But now I'm endorsing Trump because of the border, because of what he's done and how this world has flipped on its head since he left. And can you imagine how effective he might have been if they didn't make a, a Mueller investigation, follow up impeachment? 
Now, on the whole Russia thing, which was pure folly, it showed an agenda, but nobody wanted to admit it. And then, of course, you had a situation with the call to Ukraine, and a little bit self-inflicted, but to me, not not close to impeachment level that delayed everything. The president got stronger after that than the pandemic hit. And the world was just working and the country was working against him and what he was doing. And now we find out that Anthony Fauci was actually working against him. He's just a political hack. A lot going on. When we come back, I'll take your calls, but also what Barack Obama warned Joe Biden did over the summer. And those problems still exist. And is there some latent resentment between Biden and Obama about 2015 when he said Hillary Clinton's up next, not you, Joe? You're listening to The Brian Kilmeade Show. We're just scratching the surface. So glad you're here. Challenging conventional thought and wisdom. You're with Brian Kilmeade. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Ro. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Well, I'm not worried. I'm very concerned. And I have sat down with President Biden. I don't know. I saw those reports. I've also seen at least one report indicating that I have sat down uh, with President Biden. And I did uh, with him. uh, And I've uh, told him what my concerns are. I have no problem with the Biden administration and what it has done. My problem is that we have not been able to break through uh, that MAGA wall in order to get to people exactly what this president has done. What is James Clyburn thinking? Number one, there is no MAGA wall stopping Democrats from understanding what Joe Biden has done. He's not popular with Democrats as much as he needs 99% of Democrats. He needs the independents. Independents don't wait to see what Donald Trump is doing. They're evaluating. Undecideds are evaluating. There's no MAGA wall dropping. No mag, No Donald Trump supporter is ever going to support Joe Biden. He's the antithesis of what Joe Biden is. But what's more important than James Clyburn coming out pretending as if Joe Biden's done a good job job is Barack Obama evidently and they, if they don't want this out it wouldn't have come out but the Washington Post has a story that he was so worried about Donald Trump and his concern that Joe Biden isn't he said Obama grew animated in a summer discussing about 2024 and former President Donald Trump's potential return to power and has suggested to the Biden's advisors that the campaign needs more top level decision makers at its headquarters in Wilmington or it must empower the people already in place. Obama has long harbored worries about Trump's political strength, telling Joe Biden during a different private lunch last summer that Trump is a more formidable candidate than any many Democrats realize, and he thinks they have to address it appropriately. His crowds are bigger. The prob- would, a couple of things, as I mentioned last block, 
One of the reasons why Trump's got power is these cases, and they've overcharged overzealously, Jack Smith over the top, January 6th way too much. They nullified and numb people to it, and they're going to do the same thing with comparing him to Hitler. Number two is Joe Biden's policies at the border, internationally, with the economy, with drilling, uh, with this whole taking away your gas stove, putting up with uh, trans rights, the pronouns, all this ridiculous relocating of illegal immigrants in major cities. It's no longer a Texas, Arizona issue. Oh, who cares? I don't go to Tucson. I don't go to El Paso. Now, but I go to New York City and I can't get a hotel room. And the the city is over budget. Chicago's over budget. Massachusetts called it a state of emergency. You see what's going on. So this has happened under him. And now you got this story with the Secretary of Defense, Austin, out for a week and not telling anyone. And Remember, there was that key drone strike that we took out one of the militia leaders in Iraq that is a Iran-led and supplied militia leader. Well, December 22nd, Lloyd Austin had surgery. He didn't tell anybody. And then he had to go back in first week in January, last week. He didn't tell anybody. Not just me and you. Not just the press in general. Not the president, not Jake Sullivan. Not his deputy who just thought he was on vacation. If this was the Trump White House, you know what they would say, showing that they have no respect for Donald Trump, the Pentagon, uh, concerned that they uh, Donald Trump might take over the Pentagon, secretly let the Secretary of Defense get a surgery without telling anybody. This goes to show you how chaotic and unqualified Donald Trump is to run a White House. Donald Trump actually called for uh, called for him to be fired. And I can't really say that that's hyperbole real quick on What's happening now? There's a top-line spending number, it looks like, on the budget they've agreed to. Freedom Caucus is apoplectic. Uh, apoplectic. I'm going to go over with Byron York, number one. Number two, it looks like we're a day, or maybe today, they're going to give an outline of what could have been agreed upon about a massive change with border security. I'm talking about asylum. I'm talking about parole. I'm talking about the end of catch and release, along with money for more Border Patrol and more facilities but a lot of it is have to do with flights. When people come over and they say, I'm under duress, go back to your country and do it right. you got to provide truth. Go home. If you're under duress, go to a different part of your country. You can't come in our country. What they don't have is some elements of HR2, like finishing the wall. If you get most of what you want, will the House sign off on it? And for that to happen, you need Democrats signing off on it. And according to... My source involved in the negotiations, they believe that it's so powerful and there's enough in it, they'll get 20 to 30 Republican senators going for it. Think about that for a second. So I'll go over some of those numbers that by, with Byron York. He's so tapped into Washington. And then talk about with immigration, if you can't get everything but you can get most of it, do you do it and then bank on getting the presidency and the Senate in nine months? Brian Kilmeade Show. A lot going on. So glad you're here. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. He owes answers to these things because I look at it and say, okay, uh, forget about whether you can even get elected, which I think is a, is a huge is a huge question mark. If you didn't do it the first four, four years, then how are you going to now do it these next four 
uh, when you're when you're you'd be the oldest president ever inaugurated. Uh, you obviously have a lot of other issues that are swirling around. Uh, I just don't see the formula for success. Well, that is what, what he's been saying. Ron DeSantis said Trump didn't uh, get Mexico to pay for the wall, didn't finish off the wall, didn't drain the swamp, and he does not go at Trump as hard as Chris Christie or even close. Why? Because it's the toughest situation ever. He is conservative. He is a, a younger version of Donald Trump with uh, with a different approach and more of a political track record than Trump ever had in politics. But he's not Donald Trump, and you cannot win the primaries and win the nomination by going after Trump and alienating his voters. Doesn't matter how right you think you are. Byron York, chief political correspondent, Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor, joins us now. Byron, what's your take on Ron DeSantis pointing out that Trump's got trouble with electability? Well, first of all, uh, we've seen Trump uh, leading Joe Biden in a lot of head-to-head polling. Um, And we've also seen uh, a lot of polling suggesting that Trump would beat Biden in some of the key swing states, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin, those kind of places. Um, so I think that's made the electability that he can't get elected argument kind of difficult. But, you know, I think the bigger problem and the, the, what you just played, what DeSantis was saying, he's, he's telling this to a bunch of Republicans who think Trump was a good president. And uh, I'm not sure they're going to say, yeah. oh, you know, you're right. He was a bad president. I just didn't I just didn't get that. Yeah, that they think he was a good president. And and uh, I will say every single candidate, DeSantis, Haley, everybody has been looking for the secret formula of how to appeal uh, to audiences that that uh, are devoted to Trump. And so far, they haven't found it. They haven't. Are you somebody that believes the polls are, are pretty much accurate, that there's a 20, 30 point lead yeah. in the first two states? Yeah, I do. I do think so. And, and but I, I, I do want to stress that I think the polls are always a snapshot in time. I think they're accurate for the moment they were taken. If you if you aggregate them all, I, I like the real clear politics average of polls. When you put them all together in an average, you know, because any one poll could be an outlier. Uh, but you put them all together, I think they give a pretty accurate picture of where you are at one moment. And I think one thing that's interesting now, as we talk about Iowa and as we talk about New Hampshire, all of our polls right now are three weeks old. They're all pre-holiday polls. So I think this week for Iowa, Iowa's one week, the caucuses are one week from today. I think we're going to see a lot of new polls in the next three, four, five days, and that'll give us a better uh, feeling for where we are right this moment because we've been talking about Nikki Haley's surge in New Hampshire and and these other trends in 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 the race, and our polling is a little stale at the moment. Right. So. Nikki Haley, who's been just running a, a very tough campaign, very diligent campaign, uh, started getting everyone's notice, especially during the debates. I think Vivek was the best thing that ever happened to her. Uh, lately, she's had made three major mistakes. The Civil War comment, just just a fumble, and her fix wasn't great. In New Hampshire, we look at uh, New Hampshire to fix Iowa, not a great statement. Uh, and also, she came out with another statement to talk about how the different personalities of states Haley told an interviewer at a local PBS station last week that Iowa starts it, you change personalities, and you go to New Hampshire. Aaron, that's an awkward phrase. You're unscripted a lot. Those three things, Bill Malusian says, are beginning to hurt her. Do you think they, they – are they major gas for you? 
to you? Well, that's why that's uh, no, actually, I don't think any of them are major um, gaffes, but they are, you know, unscripted, uh, poorly um, thought out moments. There's no doubt about that. And that happens when a, a candidate starts getting a lot more scrutiny and people are just they're just paying more attention to what she says. So that's why I think it'll be interesting to see the polling in New Hampshire, as I said, uh, the all, the most recent stuff we have is three weeks old. So it'll be interesting to see what people are are uh, thinking now. But there's no doubt that you get more scrutiny the the, the higher you rise. Um, you know, the idea that New Hampshire corrects the Iowa vote, well, that'll hurt in Iowa, but it certainly helps in New Hampshire. That's where she wants to do really well. I don't. She's not talking about winning the Iowa caucuses. Uh, but she's talking about, you know, hoping to uh, really uh, deliver a punch to Trump in New Hampshire. Uh, Byron York, our guest. So we'll, we'll see what happens soon. But one thing is pretty clear. There's a lot of tumult within the Biden camp. That story of Barack Obama and the summer conversation and telling aides you got to show some more leadership. Uh, he seems to be concerned. It evidently got out that Obama th- grew animated, that Trump is stronger than anyone on the Democratic side b- believes and that he could be back in the presidency again and that Joe Biden basically has got to get his act together. And there's some contrary reports that says, yeah, that's all true. But Biden takes it with a grain of salt because there's still some bitterness from back to 2016 when he picked Hillary to endorse and not him. And he didn't endorse Joe Biden in 2020 until it became clear that he was going to get the nomination. Well, I think that's all true. And I look, if you're a Democrat and you're not worried about Joe Biden, I, I don't know what's what's wrong with you. <laughs> you should be worried about Joe Biden um, because, you know, he's he's a president we've watched sort of physically and mentally slow down since he became president uh, three years ago. And the fact that he's 81 years old, would be 82, starting a second term, served till 86, that is an unfixable problem. Uh, And it's something that deeply concerns majorities of voters in both parties. So, of course, you'd have to be uh, concerned about uh, Joe Biden. And the part about Trump's strength, of course, any Democrat would have to be worried about Trump's strength because of those polls I was talking about before that show Trump actually beating Biden. Now, you know, if you were in a general election of Trump versus Biden and you get to August, September, October, um, the polls can really change. People, you know, Democrats Mm -hmm. who had been criticizing Biden might say, well, you know, look, I'm a Democrat. I'm going to vote for Joe Biden. They might go back to Biden uh, and then. Biden wins. I'm, I'm not saying that couldn't happen, that uh, the, the polls do tend to – people become even more partisan as the election approaches. So I'm, I'm not saying that the situation that exists today is what's going to exist in October of this year. But but you have to be concerned about Biden, especially because of the age issue, which is the one thing we can say for certain is not going to get better. Over the summer, they spent $40 million to sell the country on Bidenomics, and they actually lost popularity. Then they came out with <laughs> democracy uh, is on the ballot. It's not resonating. But Donald Trump, you have fear of Donald Trump. They believe is going to be there is going to pay off for a victory. And the president hit yeah. the already uh, DEFCON 10 on Friday. He's really it's Nazi Germany. He will destroy the country. He refuses to leave office. He refuses to accept defeat. Uh, January 6th is just the beginning. Uh, The wisdom of doing it in January, number one. And number two, is that his only play, that an abortion? Well, we'll see. Uh, You know, today he's going to be speaking in Charleston. 
where he he's chosen to give these two speeches, this one uh, attack on Trump um, in Pennsylvania, which in which he said Trump's name 44 times. Used to, he wouldn't say the name at all. Now he can't stop. But now he's going to deliver a speech at uh, Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, which is where the racially motivated murderers, white gunmen, killed uh, uh, nine uh, black parishioners in 2015. <laughs> Um, Biden is going to give his second speech, his big kickoff speech there. What can that be? I mean, he, you know, it, he's 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 called Republicans racist for a very long time. It's something he's done for many years. Remember, he told uh, black voters that um, Mitt, Mom, Mitt Romney would re-enslave them if yeah, Romney became back in president. So, um, so you have to kind of figure that's going to be a theme of today's speech in Charleston. So. You know, you you said that the speech in Pennsylvania was kind of like DEFCON 10. Well, we'll see where he goes today. He could go a little higher. So there's a story out there today basically confirmed that uh, both the Speaker and the White House and Senator Schumer and Hakeem Jeffries, the leaders, have agreed on a top-line spending of $1.590 trillion for fiscal year 2024. It includes $886 billion for defense, $704 billion for non-defense spending, um, it'll accelerate the IRS cuts to 24 from 1925 at $6 billion. It's going to repurpose the COVID funds and claw it back. But the Freedom Caucus got to look at this and said, uh, hell no, basically. And I imagine some other Republicans are going to be upset by it. But it would afford a shutdown if they could get it confirmed. And what they do in detail will have to do with that. What is your take from what we know so far? Well, um, clearly... Uh, the new speaker, Mike Johnson, does not want to sh- shut down the government. And remember, we're always talking about a, a partial shutdown if, if, if there is such a thing. Um, but the Republicans cannot do a lot. They control the House. But, you know, um, Steve Scalise, uh, the number two ranking Republican, is, is uh, out for a while for cancer treatments. Another Republican has um, – uh, 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 retired from the House, and now the majority is 218. It's right on the number. It's amazing. They lose somebody else, they're going to be, they're not going to have a majority anymore. That's how um, tough it is for Republicans in the House. So back in, in, in days when a speaker had, you know, a 30 seat majority, and there could be 15, yeah. or 20 malcontents on his side, and you know he would lose them, but he'd still pass things. Johnson can't do that, so I think you're going to have you're going to see more conventional spending bills uh, as Johnson has to deal with Democrats because he doesn't have any choice. What do you hear about uh, What do you hear about the border uh, between Langford, between Cinema, between Murphy, and a White House rep? They think they got a framework on asylum, on changes on asylum, changes on parole, uh, catch and release. From what you hear, is there is there a bill out there that I have heard that could get 20 Republican votes in the Senate? I'm sure there is. Um, yeah, I, I have to say I am historically cynical about these things because we've had uh, lots and lots of immigration bills uh, that were designed to, quote, get tough on illegal immigration, and they didn't. Um, there, has, there has been over the years kind of a bipartisan consensus 
to support tough-sounding legislation on immigration and a bipartisan consensus not to enforce it. And I, I doubt that we'll see anything different here. I think the only change you're going to get, we, we have this incredible catastrophic situation on the border right now, and it's 100 percent the fault of Joe Biden, who opened the door when he became president in January 2021. 20, uh, I think the only change going to happen is when you have a different president, if you do have a different president, uh, because there are plenty of laws that the president can use to stop this flow. or to re- I don't mean stop every single one, but reduce the flow an enormous amount. There are several tools the president, as head of the executive branch, has, um, but Biden will not do it. You don't need another law. This is not – you know, Biden wants you to think that the situation on the border is a result of Congress not doing its job. That is not the case at all. It is the case of the president making a decision not to enforce the law at the border. And the the only way that's going to change is if the president changes. Right. Um, But if you tell the Border Patrol there's new asylum claims that if anyone comes in here without hardcore proof that you're under threat, uh, you're going right back and there's uh, jets lined up to take you back. Uh, Border Patrol doesn't know politics. They know they know marching orders. Right. Well, the Border Patrol would be very happy about that. I mean, the the whole the whole idea of stopping the flow, the, the, the message that Biden sent to the world that created this problem was if you enter the United States illegally, you will be allowed to stay. That's the message that the whole world got, yep. and that's what they're acting on. So the you have to change that message, and the only way you do it is by returning people. You don't go scour the heartland and deport people who've been here for 20 years. You're not doing that. You're making sure that thousands and tens of thousands are people of people are returned to Mexico before they have spent 24 hours right. in the United States. Turn, uh, you know, cross, process, go back. Uh, if, if the United States government did that with tens of thousands of illegal border crossers, the flow would would close dramatically. It would drop dramatically, very quickly. The you know these people who are crossing are well informed. They know what's going on. They're glad that Joe Biden has given them this opportunity. And if the situation changes, they got phones. They're going to hear about it very quickly. Real quick, uh, Secretary of Defense Austin out of commission yeah. didn't tell anyone, even the president. How big a story is this going to get? It's already huge. I think it's huge. I, I absolutely think it's a very big story, and it's absolutely inexplicable. And by the way, the neither Austin nor the Pentagon has actually said what his medical condition was, why he was even hospitalized in the first place. But you have the idea of the Secretary of Defense hospitalized in intensive care, and the president does not know, the National Security Council does not know, his deputy at the Pentagon does not know, and the oversight committees on Capitol Hill do not know. This is – and also, it's a big time for the Secretary of Defense with, with conflicts going in, in uh, Israel and Ukraine. And th- this is an extraordinary situation. I, I don't think anybody can remember anything quite like it. And um, I, I really don't – see how Austin can uh, remain the Secretary of Defense after this. I don't either, but in this administration, it doesn't matter. There was a drone strike to kill out a, a leader in Iraq, and it looks like Austin was incapacitated. Who gave the go sign? Amazing. Byron York, thanks so much. Washington Examiner, Fox News contributor. It's going to be an exciting year. Thanks, Byron. Thanks, Brian. All right. Uh, back in a moment, Brian Kilmeade Show. Your call's next. 
Want even more, Brian? Download the podcast at BrianKilmeadShow.com. Every episode, exclusive interviews on demand. More of Kilmead coming up. The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmead. And that is the biggest concern right now. You know, we've all seen those polls. We know that Democrats are concerned that Biden may be lacking that in that enthusiasm that Democrats in particular really depend on when it comes to these important general elections. They need young people to turn out and vote. They need um, racial minorities to turn out and vote. And these are the areas where we're seeing people start to lose faith in President Biden. Because a lot of the stuff he's doing, this green technology and this um, making sure that um, you know, we have uh, solar panels in places and electric cars everywhere and uh, windmills on the shore uh, and illegal immigrants on every corner and treated better than everybody else. And a lot of people, they are counting on the student loans, are happy, unhappy it's not pervasive enough. And he's actually defying a Supreme Court order to do it. Other people say, are you kidding me? You're forgiving student loans? I'm a truck driver. I didn't go to college. I'm not paying off somebody's student loan. Or I went to a school I could afford. How about that? Uh, You know, sorry you made that decision, but since when do you get bailed out by Joe Biden for a vote? So if you look at that, you look at price of things, you look at his mandates and the anger and the loss of education and intellect and grade scores, you think about this. There's a lot of things that really hit the family. Because he's trying to go with a political agenda to please his his party bosses and his union reps. Hey, don't forget, go to BrianKilmead.com. If you're anywhere near Joliet, Illinois, on January 21st, be live on stage. How to win the war on history. It's a great fun, great night, great day, and my chance to see you for Teddy and Booker T. News headquarters in New York City. Always seeking solutions, never sowing division. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. Brian Kilmeade here, like the guy with the deep voice says. Hope you had a fantastic weekend. Was able to go to Sea Island and do a speech and talk about American history, the war in history, uh, in front of uh, everyone in that beautiful Georgia location. Uh, in front of the Heritage Foundation, they invited me down to talk about Teddy and Booker T., which is just gave a mini presentation what I do on stage, will be, which will be on the 21st in Joliet, Illinois. That's my latest one. It'll be streamed live on Fox Nation. And next thing you know, there's another story. Uh, William Penn, all he did was found Pennsylvania. They're actually restructuring his park and taking his statue down in Pennsylvania. Idiots. When will it stop to give proper credence to the American Indian? This hour, we're going to be joined by Michael Goodman in the Banner of Moments and Emily Schrader, Israeli journalist and human rights activist. I want to get to the bottom of this. And, of course, we're following this story. Secretary of Defense Austin, incapacitated, intensive care, never told anyone, including the president. You have to fire him. Big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. Text hopefully this week to be able to get that out. Everybody will have time to be able to read it and go through it. No one's going to be jammed in this process. We've got to have a Democrat Senate, a Democrat White House, and a Republican House to be able to go through this. So this agreement has to work. Everyone's counting on this actually working. That is, of course, Senator Langford, along with Cinema, uh, along with Senator Murphy of Connecticut. They might have a major deal on the border, but will anybody accept it? 
I have an idea of what it contains. We'll go over it also on the budget. A top line's been agreed upon with all leadership. Freedom Caucus is apoplectic. Will that pass? We'll talk about it. Number two. You can't have a contest if you see politics as an all-out war instead of a peaceful way to resolve our differences. All-out war is what Trump wants. We're going to talk to Michael Goodwin about this. A warning to Joe from Buddy Barack. You're underestimating the power of Trump as he goes full Hitler on Trump on Friday. His message, his game plan, dubious at best. Number one. You look at those numbers, it's really hard to imagine how Trump is going to do anything except sweep Iowa. You know, Ron DeSantis gets 200 people, Trump gets 7,000. Yep. That sort of tells you something. Closing arguments as Iowa is just a week away. Front runners roll over the state this weekend with their final message. We have that and the challenge of the Trump trials coming your way and why he needs, in his view, to lock down this nomination before the trials begin. Michael Goodwin joins us, New York Post columnist. His latest story is right up our alley. Uh, Joe Biden's January 6th speech is nothing more than a rant against Donald Trump. Michael, I thought the same thing. And I thought, why are you giving this speech? I know January 6th is the next day. Why are you giving this speech that has got to last for 10 months? Because it's your only play by your own party saying this. But yet he's screaming, comparing him Donald Trump's America to Nazi Germany. Where do you go from here if you are Joe Biden? <laughs> good morning, Brian. That's a good question, because uh, when you've gone, as you say, full Hitler um, in your opening campaign speech, what's left to say? And I, look, I think the speech was, was a disaster on several fronts. First of all, the idea that, that Trump is, is Hitler and we have to, uh, he doesn't say anything about the cases, uh, the prosecutions, but, or the ballot issues, but he keeps using the word insurrectionist. He, by my count, he used it, some version of it 11 times. And that is a key word in these cases, as we know, both uh, the federal case the, and the, uh, the ballot issues, trying to keep him off the ballot. So when Joe Biden uses that word, he's not just throwing it out there. That, to me, is a dog's whistle to his party, uh, particularly those trying to keep Trump off the ballot. And probably to the courts as well, of course. Um, the other thing is uh, what's entirely missing from the speech is any sense of what Joe Biden has accomplished or what he yeah. would accomplish in four more years. I mean, it's almost as though he can't give any examples that will resonate. Uh, remember not long ago he was trying to say Bidenomics is a good thing? Well, that flopped. I mean, the, the polls really don't move at all for him. Uh, and you have more than half of the Democratic Party not wanting him to run. So I think from, from the campaign's perspective, Trump is all they have. They have, they have no issue to run on. It's just Trump, Trump, Trump. I mean, it, what, climate change, that's going to elect you. Raise more taxes. Uh, beef up the IRS. What is going to move the needle for Joe Biden? And I think he has uh, almost correctly concluded only uh, making Donald Trump out to be Hitler. 
So, so therefore, that's what the speech was about. I mean, it's a it's a dreadful thought that this is what we're going to hear for the next eleven months. But I can't imagine he'll he'll pick up anything else. It's all right. all Hitler all the time. I know, but you're you're right. But you know what happened? What happened is two things. Almost all of his policies reversing Trump have turned out to make you want Trump more. Sure. Number number two. He numbs you to it. His party numbs you to January 6th. It was a terrible day, terrible day. Okay, got it. January 6th committee. Understood. Here comes another. Oh, Donald Trump. He's screaming at Trump. Okay. That's the first year. The second year. The third year. Now we're in the fourth year, and he starts again. They want everyone to relive it. Jake Tapper running a special on Saturday. And then they say, why does not him, why does Donald Trump still beating all the Republicans, and why does he beat Joe Biden head to head? And they talk about Joe Biden's message and what he's going to do. No one ever looks at what Donald Trump did. Nobody on another channel, even a Democrat, would just say, by the way, the border policy, the economic policy, the tax policy, the trade policy, the foreign policy. They never bring up what Trump did. They bring up the, you know, the collusion with Russia. They bring up the impeachment. They bring up January 6th. Okay. Two of three would, would never should have happened. The impeachment never should have happened. The Mueller report never should have happened. But January 6th, you could say that. It's a terrible day. He's a terrible loser. Don't like the way he acted at the end. And the American people said three years later, I don't like the way you're leading the country. I don't understand your agenda. I am really concerned about the direction of our economy. And I, I don't want to uh, give up my gas stove. I don't want to... Uh, except 14-year-olds, 14-year-old girls getting transition surgery. So um, this is the type of thing that people just say, I'd rather flip on issues. It never occurs to people that the issues under Trump matter more than the personalities of the two men. Well, look, uh, I think you're right. Uh, In in my column, I quote James Carville, uh, not exactly a Republican, um, who says that he basically feels January 6th speech is a fine speech for January 6th. But January 8th and January 9th, people are going to the grocery store, and they're not going to be thinking about January 6th. People don't live in that day the way Biden wants them to. And, Brian, uh, regarding the Trump agenda, I think that comparison to Biden's uh, results is why the, the polls have shifted in the last year or so. You've seen two, two phenomenon. One is uh, Trump running away with the GOP nomination, at least in the national polls and in the state polls so far. And you've seen him uh, gain on Biden and actually pass him in a number of polls. So all of this, I believe, is a result of the Biden administration's agenda. Its policies are just wrong. They have not worked. The failure is I mean, the border alone is such a disaster. Look at the Democratic cities, Boston, Denver, New York, Chicago, all of them wailing about the number of these illegal immigrants who are who are showing up on the doorsteps. Uh, I mean, New York, we've we've now got gangs. We've got now migrant uh, robbery crews and things like that already happening. You mean the smash and grab that took place? I I think in a an elite, an elite. A retail store. They think they took five 
uh, $5,000 worth of products real quick, and then cops came. And then there was a stabbing in Randall's Island. One guy got one 26-year-old stabbed, another 24-year-old. When they went in there, they found out that almost everybody had knives. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's out of control. But when you see the pictures, I mean, what, 70% it looks like are young men? Who are who are coming across the border? I mean, there are s- sprinkling of women and children, but the vast majority appears to be young men, uh, who many of whom don't speak English. We don't know their education level. We don't know their cr- if they have a criminal background. We don't know if they have any skills. Uh, you cannot flood these cities with with this immigrant population that has not been vetted that's just come because they chose to come we don't know who they are that's not the way our immigration system has ever worked and it's not working now because this is an utter disaster but biden doesn't want to talk about that so trump hitler trump hitler that's all he wants to use that as his one issue that's enough of a reason to vote for me because donald trump is a, is a a dictator. He's a dictator wannabe, and therefore you have to come on my side. I don't think it's going to work. Uh, look, I think Trump has something to do with this. I think he still has to improve on some of this nonsense, the the uh, the name calling and things. I mean, mocking John I really McCain on the thumbs down. Mocking John McCain on the thumbs down on Obamacare. Just yeah. say you wanted to have Obamacare. You have another plan. There's no reason to bring up something negative. The people in jail on January 6th aren't hostages. Some are overcharged. Maybe some are in there wrongly. Go ahead, evaluate it. But they're not hostages. That's that's You can't spin that positively in my no. book. And, and every time he does something like that, it just feeds into what Biden is trying to say. As I say in the column, you know, it, there is some merit to what Biden is trying to do vis-a-vis January 6th. But it would make a lot more sense if his own attorney general wasn't trying to prosecute Trump uh, and if the Democrats weren't trying to take Trump off the ballot. It's very hard to say you are a defender of democracy when you're trying to lock up your opponent. Uh, that The two things clang. They don't go together. And that, But that's another issue. And look, Biden's hands are not clean on that issue either. He clearly wanted Merrick Garland to prosecute Trump. New York Times did a story on it. And and it, it said that, you know, they hadn't spoken directly, but Biden had made it known to associates. He was disappointed Garland hadn't been prosecuting Trump. By the same token, we know that Biden is now disappointed in Garland that his son's case is moving forward. So this is a president who is not letting the Justice Department make its own decisions. Well, he yeah. is politicizing these decisions. Well, now think about this. If Joe Biden, if President Trump had a secretary of defense go into intensive care to have surgery without telling him, and then go into intensive care without reporting it, have a drone strike on a militia leader in Iraq without obviously his even the secretary of defense even knowing it. So who is calling the shots? And then it turns out up until last Thursday, he did not know his, his secretary of defense was even in the hospital or even having surgery. Jake Sullivan didn't know it. The Secretary of State didn't know it. His own deputy didn't know it. His, if that, Donald Trump was president and his Secretary of Defense was doing that, that would be pointed to as showing an out-of-control White House who doesn't understand protocol, who hires people who aren't worthy of the position. 
Think about what, where do you possibly get your credibility back if you're Secretary of Defense Austin or the president? Yeah, I mean, th- this is one of the more mysterious things, Brian, that I've ever seen in politics. I mean, particularly given what's going on in the world, uh, at this moment, the Secretary of Defense uh, sort of just opts out. And there was some line that, oh, because of uh, health care privacy. What? I'm, I'm sorry. When you're Secretary of Defense, you can't you can't hide behind health care privacy. You the world has to know if you're not on the job, at least everybody in Washington. I mean, Congress deserves to know these things, too. And so I, I do hope we will get to the bottom of this. But of course, what can Joe Biden say uh, about Austin? Joe Biden's on vacation about, what, half the time. Uh, so th- this is a kind of no-show administration, but this is a scary one, I have to say. Yeah, it is. And I just think that when the president comes off a of vacation, when he stays with a billionaire in some Caribbean island and comes back and has nothing on his schedule for three straight days, nothing. And that we fight. We got too hot. We got a we got the Red Sea, which is literally on fire. Israel, which is is moving through Gaza while getting rocketed from Hezbollah, and you got uh, Hamas heads and militia heads being droned to death. My goodness, why would you take an hour off, let alone two weeks off, and do nothing during the day while not giving any interviews and giving one inflammatory speech that no one saw? It's it's a crazy White House. And I just ask people to compare it, understand that they're giving them a total pass and that they would never do this for any Republican, especially Trump. Oh, yes. No question. But, Brian, just think of this, too. During all of this, all these things you just mentioned, you would think at some point in there, the president of the United States, the commander in chief, would have spoken to the secretary of defense. The fact that Biden didn't even know that uh, Austin was in the hospital, in intensive care, just shows you who, who is really running this administration. What, is anybody running it, or is it just a series of individual it's departments true. running themselves, uh, no longer in touch with the White House, except when the White House wants to hold a press conference? I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. How could there be no knowledge in the White House, in the National Security Council, that the Secretary of Defense is not reachable, is in the hospital in intensive care? How could there be no notice? I mean, it is it is astounding. Gotcha. Uh, Michael, we could go on for four hours and still not have enough time. <laughs> Michael Goodwin, New York Post. Thanks so much, Michael. My pleasure, Brian. Thank okay. you. At uh, M. Goodwin underscore NY Post. When we come back, your calls one eight six six four zero eight seven six six nine. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade. So Greg Abbott was on Fox News Sunday, and he talked about the things that had to be done in order for this new legislation, immigration legislation, to be effective. Listen, cut 26. They must end uh, the catch and release policies that the Biden administration has put into place. Uh, Candidly, the the law already prohibits uh, the, the mass uh, 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 allowance uh, of uh, people getting out uh, and wandering the country for years before they ever have to go to court. The Biden administration simply is not enforcing that. They must hold uh, the Biden administration responsible uh, and, and d- deny them the ability 
to have catch and release. And I think they will. That's part of this legislation from the Republican perspective, I understand. Also, they're going to bring up bring a whole bunch of judges. They don't have to be formal judges. They're going to make instant decisions on these people's status. And it's going to be almost impossible to get asylum status, as it should. If you come outside the port of entry, you're almost eliminated on the spot. And if you're saying, well, I'm under threat in my country, go to a different part of your country. That's not enough. You have to have multiple a log of evidence that shows this is the only place for you to go. Because we know the first country you step into is where you should apply if you want to come here. And you can go through an embassy in your country to get here the right way. Not saying it's easy, but that's the way you do it. If some of those changes are in, including parole changes, will the Republicans, if they get almost everything they want, will they sign off on it? Would you? Knowing that you have a good shot at getting the Senate, a great shot at getting the Senate, and a more than a good shot at getting the White House in nine months. Radio that makes you think. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. We reject the statements by some Israeli ministers and lawmakers calling for a resettlement of Palestinians outside of Gaza. These statements are irresponsible, they're inflammatory, and they only make it harder to secure a future of Palestinian-led Gaza with Hamas no longer in control and with terrorist groups no longer able to threaten Israel's security. Yeah, well, that's easy to say when you come and visit. But if you have to live there, how could you possibly feel secure with the Palestinians miles away in the West Bank and what's left of Gaza? Emily Schrader is an Israeli journalist, human rights activist, and joins us now. Emily, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Happy to be here. Uh, Well, first off, uh, can you give me an idea what's the mood in the country as compared to, let's say, uh, a month ago? Sure. I mean, I think the whole country is collectively in trauma and understandably so. And of course, right now, the issue of the hostages continues to be at the forefront as it should be. Quite frankly, it's extremely frustrating to most of us in Israel that this isn't the number one demand globally. I mean, no matter what your views are on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict or what Israel is doing or is not doing, to be able to say, listen, there are innocent hostages who are being held in inhumane conditions, who have been tortured, who have been sexually assaulted, who have undergone horrendous, horrendous trauma, and nobody is lobbying for them. Nobody is pushing or demanding that Hamas release them. Before we talk about ceasefire, the first thing that needs to happen is the release immediately of every single hostage. Right. But you know that Hamas couldn't care less about world opinion. Uh, and it gets extremely tough to tell your army to take the foot off the gas because it allows Hamas fighters to possibly escape. Where are negotiations at in Qatar? I mean, the negotiations as they stand today, Israel has agreed to to have a ceasefire uh, under certain conditions, and all of them were rejected by Hamas. Uh, We've proposed several different options that Hamas has rejected, all of them. And I think this is something that isn't quite making it through the the international media enough, that people who are calling for ceasefire, we, we offered a ceasefire. We offered a temporary ceasefire in exchange for all of the hostages, and they refused. So the issue here is, is far beyond, you know, just the practicalities of, of what's best on the battlefield, although, of course, that's something we have to weigh. But at the end of the day, our number one priority is the hostages, and our number two priority is taking out Hamas, which we will continue to do, as well as Hezbollah. Just today, we took out one of the senior Hezbollah commanders on the northern border, which has been continuously escalating since October 7th as well. And that really just points to the fact that this issue is not between 
between Israel and Palestinians. It's not between Israel and Hamas. It's between Israel and the Islamic Republic of Iran, because the Islamic Republic of Iran is who is behind all of these factors that are happening right now. Whether they are admitting it or not, they have sort of played back and forth. We know they are. We know from intelligence assessments before October 7th, and we know now. They have already found uh, weapons on the ground inside Gaza. Our soldiers have found weapons with Persian writing on it. They found instruction manuals. They found communications between the Islamic Republic of Iran and Hamas terrorists on the ground. There is undeniably a connection, and it needs to be dealt with because it's far bigger than just one single terrorist organization. This is something that's impacting people around the world. And unfortunately, it also is going to, if it's not already, it's going to impact the West as well, including the United States. And with some of those discoveries, it showed the, as the Iranians teaching Hamas fighters how to build precision rockets. So that would be detrimental to the existence of Israel if those rockets got better. Absolutely. I mean, this is what we're dealing with also on the northern border. You have more, you know, better precision-guided missiles. In fact, one of them hit Kiryat Shmone, one of the communities that has been evacuated since October 7th. It hit today on the ground, as well as an anti-tank missile. So the capabilities uh, with the the intelligence and training of of Iran is significantly worse, which is why we saw such a, a horrific attack on October 7th because of the involvement of Iran. And, you know, unfortunately, if if anybody thinks that this is something that's just a conflict in the Middle East, then they're sorely mistaken, because I think the Islamic Republic of Iran has been very, very clear about what their intent is, and it is far greater than, you know, what they call the little Satan here in Israel. They're concerned with the United States. Their goal is to eliminate the West, not to cause a war, not to take over territory, to eliminate, okay, in terms of values. And for that reason, now is the time when we need everybody to stand with us, whether or not you like Israel, to stand with us because the, the civilizational issue, the values that we hold dear, freedom of speech, democracy, freedom of press, all of these things are things that that regime in Iran is against, fundamentally against. And we can't allow that to happen. So this is, story has come out that uh, led by Brett, uh, uh, Brett McGurk that the hostage swap of five uh, of six billion dollars for five hostages, which the South Koreans unfroze, they say, Iranian money. Also, it's had two secret elements to it. One, the Iranians would stop weaponizing or weaponizing uranium, getting it to weapon uh, weapons grade. And number two, stop with the attack, militia attacks on our troops. And they went kind of silent. Obviously, they played us because now those. Militias are rocketing us on a daily basis, over 120 attacks. The Houthi rebels, another militia working for Iran, is trying to shut down the Red Sea. And we see what Hezbollah and Hamas are doing to you guys. When are we going to learn, do you think, that Iran can't be trusted? I mean, I think the problem when it comes to Iran, which has been going on for far longer than just this conflict with Hamas, the problem with the United States and Iran is the Biden administration. From day one, they've been exceptionally weak. The people who they have in the State Department who are dealing with this issue from, of course, Rob Malley, who has his ongoing scandals, and many other officials in the State Department who are developing, who are making the decisions on these Iran policies that impact the whole world. I mean, there's a reason that people were taking a strong stand against the Islamic Republic, regardless of what their actual political views are or who they vote for. This isn't a partisan issue. 
And unfortunately, the Biden administration has been pitifully weak when it comes to Iran. You mentioned the $6 billion being unfrozen. This is catastrophic to the movement, to the resistance within the country of Iran, of the people who want regime change, of the people who are risking their lives in the streets to fight against the Islamic Republic. And instead of standing up for them and instead of fighting for them, not in terms of launching a war, right. but in terms of implementing policy that is zero tolerance, full implementation of sanctions, Magnitsky sanctions, adding additional sanctions. That is what the president of the United States should have been doing the entire last year, and he didn't, even when we spoke about it, even when we called for it. And now, unfortunately, we're seeing the results. And the longer this goes on with a weak policy towards the Islamic Republic, the worse it's going to be at the end. So we have to push back now, all of us, Democrats, Republicans, doesn't even matter. We have to pressure all Democratic nations, not just the United States, to have a zero-tolerance approach when it comes to the Islamic Republic. And what happens to Gaza the day after? Douglas Murray on with Mark Levin last night said this. Israeli society as a whole has shifted so fast in the last few months because they've seen the reality of the terror, the reality of Hamas, the reality that they are like ISIS or worse. And even as they have seen this, Western politicians land in Israel and say, this is why we have to double down on the two-state solution. When, of course, if you had elections today in the West Bank, Hamas would win. That's why there are no elections in the West Bank. If you had elections in Gaza again, I mean, not that anyone wants them, Hamas would win. So here's the thing. Everyone outside is saying two-state solution, two-state solution. But even leftists in Israel say there isn't one. Is, that, is he echoing the thought on the ground in Israel? I mean, I don't think that there's very much dispute at all right now that a two-state solution isn't a practical reality on the ground today. That being said, I and many others think that in the long term, the only option is a two-state solution for a number of different reasons, primarily the demographic reason. Um, either Israel is going to have to accept all Palestinians as Israeli citizens, which threatens the a Jewish demographic of the state, if we stay a democracy, and if we don't, well, then that's, then that's the dream of every anti-Israel extremist and what they accuse us of being. So long term, there needs to be some sort of solution that respects, um, you know, sovereignty for both peoples. But Douglas Murray is absolutely correct. On the ground today, the reality is we are dealing with a society, the majority of whom, unfortunately, the majority of whom actually support the actions of Hamas. And that's terribly unfortunate. It's a tragic reality, and it's the result of decades of incitement to violence, of anti-Semitism from cradle to grave. And it's something that's gone so far out of control, partially as a result of social media in Arabic, that it's very, very difficult to stop that. You would need to see uh, really someone who's able to control that society and sort of bring them out of this whole brainwashed mentality where they're glorifying martyrdom and death. I mean, this is child abuse. What we are finding, what our soldiers are finding in schools, in mosques, in homes, in children's bedrooms, terror tunnels, weapons, glorification in their textbook of, of murdering Jews, it's, it's obscene. No question. And lastly, the popularity of Benjamin Netanyahu, I heard, is at 15%. How does somebody govern a country, even in time of war, with 15% approval? Well, uh, yes, since October 7th, Netanyahu's numbers have continued to plummet, as well as support for the government in general. I think that that's justified in terms of what happened. The Israeli public is obviously very upset and traumatized, and our government did fail us. Um, I think we are going to see significant changes when the next elections come. However, the number one thing we have to focus on right now 
is the return of the hostages and the war. It's not a time for internal political debates of whether you love or hate Netanyahu. The reality is Israeli Arabs, Israeli Jews, Israeli Druze, everyone on the ground here is part of one nation. And right now we need to stand together regardless of our differences um, against this evil that is being put forward by the Islamic Republic of Iran through all of its proxies on the ground. Hamas, Hezbollah, Islamic Jihad and the Houthis. Israeli journalist Emily Schrader with us. Emily, lastly, in what, does your intel say that Hamas is getting what they wanted? Did they expect this type of response from Israel after the horrifying attack on October 7th? I mean, I can't imagine I this is working to their strength. I know Iran wants unrest. Iran doesn't want reconciliation with the rest of the Arab world isolating them. But do you think Hamas wants this? I think that Hamas wanted a war. Uh, I think that they expected more support from the Iranian regime. Uh, I don't know that they expected Israel to be so efficient in what they did. I don't know if you remember, but at the beginning of the war, the IDF actually took considerable amounts of time before physically entering Gaza and the ground operation. Obviously, this was strategic in order to sort of exhaust their forces who were prepared for a massive reaction, even on October 8th. So the IDF is acting strategically. They're acting with the intelligence that they have, with the knowledge that they have on the ground and that they're continuing to get. Um, they will continue fighting until we're able to eliminate these uh, these vile terrorists from the earth. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, I don't know if they expected it to be this, uh, this thorough so far. Right. Uh, best of luck eradicating every one of them. Uh, and hopefully we'll grow a thank spine you. in the Red Sea. Uh, Emily Schrader, thanks so much. Stay safe. Thank you. All right. Uh, When we come back, your phone call, 1-866-408-7669. The Golden Globes were last night. I know you missed it, but we do have some highlights, or dare I say lowlights, with a host that got the job a week ago and his material looked like he got it an hour ago. We'll explain. Expanding your knowledge base. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Oppenheimer and Barbie are competing for cinematic box office achievements. Oppenheimer is based on a 721-page Pulitzer Prize-winning book about the Manhattan Project. And Barbie is on a plastic doll with big boobies. And Margo, it's not always about you. The key moment in Barbie is when she goes from perfect beauty to bad breath, cellulite, and flat feet. Ah, or what casting directors call character actor. <laughs> some I wrote, some other people wrote. Yeah, just disowned some of the jokes and some others. What, what makes it so tough to host this show? Why does no one want to host it? First, I thought it was canceled because it wasn't politically correct. Now it's back. And look, if you do a movie, nothing wrong. If you want to watch an award show, watch an award show. But if you are somebody, an emerging comic or, or a personality, why not do it? I mean, put in, just be humble, go out there, have some fun. But this guy panicked. Cut 38. If you haven't seen Saltburn, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about. So watch it. Then you'll understand what I was talking about. And then right after that, watch Barbie. And then you're going to be like, Something, something's missing. And then watch Maestro. And you'll be like, oh, there it is. It's on Bradley Cooper's face. <laughs> what? That's hilarious. It's, yo, I got the gig 10 days ago. You want a perfect monologue? Yo, shut up. I mean, what the hell is going on, right? I mean, can you imagine this? Hell, just just move through it. I mean, everybody bombs. 
or has mixed reactions, a lot of times also you look to two audiences. You have one at home and you have one there. One there. It's, isn't it all celebrities? And they're all drinking? So I, I don't know. I thought it was weird. Now, I, did you, I, I don't know if anybody saw Barbie, but evidently this was a monologue in Barbie from America Friera. So Kevin Costner evidently memorized it. Cut 40. I'm such a fan of yours, like the bodyguard. When, when you say goodbye, Rachel, and then she leaves, and then, and then, and then you run to each other, and then oh, chills. Well, you know, you have a scene that I really love. I think a lot of people really love that scene. Uh, really? Which, yeah. Which the, scene the, is that? The, the Barbie movie, you know, where it's literally <laughs> impossible to be a woman. You know, that you're so beautiful, you're so smart, and it kills me that you don't think you're good enough. That was pretty good. Did you, Kevin Costner, memorize my monologue about womanhood from, from Barbie? No, but it's an important message, uh-huh. really. I mean, and, and it always serves to remind me... What's possible in film. So it's kind of serious there. That's kind of cool. Hey, Bob, you're watching on the stream. I appreciate it in Pennsylvania. What's on your mind? Uh, hey, Brian. Uh, I just have a different look at the Lloyd Austin bit. Um, perhaps he didn't inform the White House because during his tenure, he realized that Biden really isn't in charge and didn't feel a need to. But he didn't even tell his deputy, Brad. I mean, he didn't tell well, anybody, evidently. No no one stood up and well, said, I knew the saying. whole time. No, no, I get that. But I don't know, man. Um, besides, you know, maybe his incompetence, the fact that he didn't feel he had to tell somebody shows a lack of leadership with the, Absolutely. With the president. Hey, Absolutely. Brad, I, I, so, I said this before, but can you imagine if, if Trump's secretary of defense didn't inform him, goes in for surgery, has to go back for uh, into the emergency room and in intensive care? You know what they'd be saying about Trump? He can't run the White House. No one respects him. His Pentagon keeps him, keeps the facts away from him. They're scared of him. Can you imagine what they'd be saying? Oh, no, absolutely. And I'm not a big fan of Lloyd, but I wouldn't lay all the blame at his feet. Why? Because I believe that based on his relationship with the White House, he felt that it wasn't necessary to tell him. But, Brad, with his military background, it's not up to you to judge who your boss is. And why is it that when he was incapacitated, we finally took out the leader of a militia in Iraq? I mean, can you believe if he, if you didn't tell me that Biden ordered that? If Austin didn't order it, his own deputy didn't order it. Who ordered the strike? Well, there you go. You answered your own question yeah. because Lloyd didn't feel a need to tell anybody because the White House is in chaos. But he didn't make the decision. Brad, thanks. Hank, Virginia Beach. Hank, real quick. Hey, buddy. How you doing, Brian? So you believe Elise Stefanik would be the perfect number two? Yes. I went to uh, the kickoff for Jen Kiggins yesterday, and she was up on the stage, and she's just a rock star. She didn't read anything. Everything just came from her heart and her mind. She's just so articulate. She's amazing. Tough, I'm too. Really, Very tough. I knew she eviscerated the guys from the, the, the presidents of uh, MIT and UPenn and uh, Harvard. But let me tell you something. She's a force to be reckoned with. Thanks, Hank. By the way, in New York, talking about New York City, these uh, idiot activists are now shutting down the Holland Tunnel, it looks like, and various bridges. Do you believe this? For Because they're against Israel. Who's organizing that? We discussed that a lot on Friday, and hopefully people will disarm and defund them. News Radio Studios in Midtown Manhattan. It's the fastest growing radio talk show. Brian Kilmeade. 
All right, welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. I'm so glad you're here. Hope you had a fantastic weekend, and it was snow-free. That was a worry I had. I was lucky enough to go to um, uh, to Sea Island. It was able to address the Heritage Foundation. I'll be talking to Congressman James Comer and others about the latest on the Hunter Biden investigation, and Jason Chaffetz was there uh, working together. If Donald Trump is to win, and I imagine DeSantis or Haley too, uh, Heritage is there to help staff, and that was a big problem last time. I just got a quick news note. An Israeli strike has killed a commander of Hezbollah. It's their Radwan force. It's someone there to uh, exist in order to infiltrate into Israel. Well, he's dead now. Uh, and at any moment, uh, at any moment, people are worried about this whole thing just exploding. But Israel has no choice. They've been attacked on every side. They're not going to sit there and take it. They're on the offensive. We have our secretary of state in the region. And we have our Secretary of Defense in uh, in the hospital, which we just found out about. Uh, standing by is Congressman Chip Roy of Texas. A little bit later, Josh Krashauer of um, he's a Fox News contributor, political analyst. So let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's big three. Number three. Text hopefully this week to be able to get that out. Everybody will have time to be able to read it and go through it. No one's going to be jammed in this process. We've got to have a Democrat Senate, a Democrat White House, and a Republican House to be able to go through this. So this agreement has to work. Everyone's counting on this actually working. So that is Senator Lankford, which is so important. We have Congressman Chip Roy here. He has uh, come out with a framework. No one's really seen it. Worked out with Cinema and Senator Murphy of Connecticut. It's a compromise situation, but they say that uh, the, the the Democrats came to play in this because they have no choice. We'll talk about that and as well as this new top line agreement on spending for the upcoming year to avoid a shutdown. What does Chip Roy think about that and free, Freedom Caucus members? Let's go to it. Number two. You can't have a contest if you see politics as an all out war instead of a peaceful way to resolve our differences. All out wars what Trump wants. Really? That's from a guy that just called him Hitler, right? Warning to Joe from Buddy Barack. You're underestimating the power of Trump. That's no joke. As Biden goes full Hitler on Trump on Friday, his message, his game plan. Number one. You look at those numbers, it's really hard to imagine how Trump is going to do anything except sweep Iowa. You know, Ron DeSantis gets 200 people. Trump gets 7,000. That sort of tells you something. New Gingrich, former speaker, closing arguments as Iowa's just a week away. Front runners are all over the state uh, this weekend with their final message. We have that and the challenge of the Trump trials coming your way. Uh, Congressman Chip Roy joins us now. Congressman, welcome back. Hey, Brian, great to be on. Uh, man, you're down at Sea Island hanging out with my friends from Heritage, Kevin Roberts, and my colleagues. I'm in Iowa. You had some better weather than, than I've got uh, driving around Iowa. But you're a tough guy. You can handle it. You're probably standing with a tank top saying, bring it on. Uh, you were helping out Ron DeSantis. He was on with us on Friday, and he says, on the ground, it's a lot different than the polls. What are you finding, Congressman? Yeah, same thing, Brian. I mean, I was out here with our friend, Congressman Massey. Uh, we've been you know, going all over the state to lots of events. And with all due respect to the former speaker, not the first time I've disagreed with him or the first time he's been wrong, uh, there are just massive amounts of, of people showing up to events all across the state for Governor DeSantis. I've been in these rooms where they're packed. Uh, you know, uh, the speaker kind of just dismisses, oh, a few hundred. Well, it's how Iowa works. Uh, we're going around to town by town by town. There's massive energy. Uh, Governor DeSantis is surging. We've got a massive infrastructure here, 1,500 uh, precinct captains. We've got 42 members of the legislature that are supporting him. Uh, he's in a really good position. And, uh, look, the, the message has been pretty clear. I've been delivering. And, and uh, you, you want somebody that can deliver, somebody delivers results. Governor DeSantis has killed it. He took on Fauci. He took on Disney. 
Uh, he you know, took on all of the uh, education uh, establishment, the teachers union. He's got Miami-Dade on their heels. He passed universal school choice. And with all due respect to the former president, who you know I've, I've supported in 16 and 20 and will support again if he's the nominee, the former president said he'd secure the border and he'd build a wall and make Mexico pay for it. That didn't happen. Said he would you know, get good uh, border security legislation passed. He teamed up with Paul Ryan to pass an amnesty bill, and we failed. He did get good legislation passed. He empowered Fauci. He gave it a commendation on the way out, added $8 trillion to the economy. I mean, I'm sorry, $8 trillion to the debt. And uh, so there's all of these issues that I think Governor DeSantis makes a really strong case why he wants somebody who can serve for eight years, wore the uniform, served in the Navy. He's got a great family. He's young, vibrant. He grew up in the 80s instead of being in his 80s. The American people want to change and a vision. Governor DeSantis is that guy. So, Congressman, I, I am surprised. I know you're pulling for uh, DeSantis, but I am surprised you're being critical of the former president. I thought he did everything possible within the law to build that wall, and then finally he repurposed defense because the House only gave him $1.4 uh, billion two years in a row, right? Yeah, uh, look, Brian, no question. I mean, and, and I want to be clear. I'm always trying to be honest and objective. I know. Right? So, like, Tom Homan and Mark Morgan, they're good friends of mine. Russ Vogt is the director of the Office of Management Budget. They were working to get the money because he was having to fight Congress. I, I agree with you on that. But we could have forced the issue on Mexico more. We could have taxed remittances. We could have done some things to get more dollars to do it. But importantly, we could have forced the issue on passing legislation instead of coming in day one, teaming up with Paul Ryan to do a bad uh, Obamacare repeal that failed. And then in 2018, it literally saddling up with Paul Ryan and the Chamber of Commerce and Wall Street Journal to do an amnesty first bill. It took the air out of the balloon. And remember, DeSantis was in the Freedom Caucus then when Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows and he fought President Trump in the summer of 2018 trying to get a good border bill. We failed. And that that adds up. And look, there's no excuse for empowering Fauci, no excuse for $8 trillion of debt. We all know that. I just wish the president would admit, admit it. But again, but but, you I'm know, he, he silent him at the end. And Fauci was the most popular guy in the country at the time of the pandemic. We knew nothing about. Well, OK, then come in a, four months later and say, yeah, we went too far. Let's open everything up. And Fauci was wrong. The president wasn't doing that. The president commended him. The president has never apologized for doing that. Never apologized for jamming the vaccine through. He says Operation Warp Speed is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Say that to the people struggling with clots and health issues. Look. Again, the former president was up against an onslaught of a Congress that sucks. Republicans in Congress suck. Let's be blunt. But And I get it. And, look, I supported him and fought alongside him, and I will again if he's the nominee. But Governor DeSantis showed how you do it in Florida. He won by a million and a half votes. He got 62 percent of Hispanic voters after he sent a plane full of illegal aliens to Martha's Vineyard and saved our election last September. Uh, when the House Republicans were struggling. So now we just got to get House Republicans to actually do their damn job in Washington, cut spending instead of increasing it. And I've heard great things from people that aren't political about the way Ron DeSantis went to school in this pandemic. Uh, even from Jared Kushner, he'd call before anyone was up at 7 in the morning, go, give me your latest numbers. This is what yeah. I'm finding. And the way he, the questions he asked these scientists blew them away. So his performance uh, during the pandemic was unbelievable, and I think uh, history will show that. So yeah, I, you're I, right, like Scott Atlas and Jay Bhattacharya and those yep. great doctors, they were impressed by DeSantis and how much he invested. He's such a smart guy. Look, he's just a good guy. He's a good human. I, I look, I've got so much admiration. I'm on a bus right now with Casey. We're going to go see a bunch of other folks because the governor went back to Florida to deliver the state of the state. And you know what? The state of the state in Florida is pretty damn good. Yeah. I know, and you're with a, a very talented uh, young lady. I know that. 
Uh, I want to ask you about what's going to come down. Now, uh, I think I know what you're going to say about this, but I talked to a key member of the negotiating team of Langford, Cinema, and Murphy, and a representative from the White House. And they're going to come out with a framework, and you probably have good sources too. But they say one thing, uh, they're going to redo amnesty, they're going to redo parole, they're going to do, uh, they're going to end catch and release. They're not going to have, they don't get permission to do the wall yet. Would you accept anything short of H.R. 2? And what do you think about what I just told you? Well, first of all, I have never in my life seen an experience where the Senate uh, gangs that come together, that go try to negotiate deals, ever result in anything that I can support or that's good for the country. Uh, and remember, the border is so bad right now yep. that people are getting lulled into believing that, well, we'll take anything. And to some degree, right, we want to force anything we can to get Biden to do anything to yep. stop the bleeding. So I understand that impulse. And look, and Langford's a good man, and I've had great meetings with cinema. But I want to be very clear. What I've seen to date is unimpressive. It doesn't get the job done because if you leave any room for them to use unaccompanied alien children, use any of the – the abuses they've been doing with the family migration. If you give them a sliver of hope in, in a use of asylum or parole, they'll use it. So, you know, H.R. 2 is designed right. Take the put the wall aside for a minute. That's a politically charged issue. And put E-Verify aside for a minute. Both important issues that we should do, and they're important in H.R. 2. The engine of H.R. 2 is designed to say you will, if you come to the border of the United States, you will either be detained, as, by the way, current law requires, but this just doubles down and say you will be detained, you will be put in removal, yep. or you will remain in Mexico. That is what H.R. 2 says. This will not do that. This will basically try to, you know, tighten down a little. Do you know that asylum. for sure? I'm, what's that? Do you know that for sure? I, I because I heard this would be, do that. It will not do what I just described. I am 100% confident. It okay. will not limit it to just detention, removal, or Mexico. And, you know, if it is, then I'll be happy to sit down and go through it and look at it. But every indication I get in all our conversations, it will not do that. It will nibble down at uh, abuses on asylum and abuses on parole. Maybe. It wasn't on parole, although now they're kind of rumbling about it. So we'll look at the language. I'm always open-minded. But at the end of the day, I do not believe this will secure the border. I certainly don't think we should be trying to leverage uh, you know, more Ukraine funding, which half of Americans don't even want to give them any more money at all in order to get something that's watered down. So I'll look at it with an open mind, but I am not optimistic that we're going to get actual border security out of it. Um, but, you know, I guess we'll see in the next two days what the product looks like. The other thing is uh, the top line number is now out uh, that the yeah. speaker agreed upon, along with Hakeem Jeffries, Chuck Schumer, uh, and I guess Mitch McConnell. It's $1.59 trillion. One thing they got the IRS uh, $6 billion is going to be in the 24 budget, not the 25 budget. Uh, they are going to repurpose or claw back the uh, a lot of the COVID virus stuff. What do you think about what you know so far? Yeah, those two are the talking points that the Speaker's office and the, and the Senate Republicans are putting out. But they really don't do much. At the end of the day, this bill is a $1.659 trillion bill. To be very clear, that is $57 billion more than the Nancy Pelosi levels that we opposed in the omnibus just a year ago. We now are going to be looking at having an opportunity to use a continuing resolution for the end of through the year that would trigger caps that would drop it to $1.562 trillion. And instead of doing that, we're going to basically spend $100 billion more. I think that's a failure. 
The only way that wouldn't be a failure is if it's chock full of policy writers that would constrain the Biden Department of Justice, constrain them on the border security abuses, constrain their abuses with their environmental policies and their woke ideology, DEI, and all their climate change stuff. If we have lots of good policy changes, then maybe it's worth spending more money. I would still have concerns with that because of our debt. But we're fighting, you know, a crazy Biden administration. But this I do not believe will do that. The NDAA is a pretty good example. Right. We passed it in in December after we passed a good bill last summer. We passed a bad compromise in December that extended Pfizer for 16 months and eliminated 85 percent of our riders that we had in our NDAA. So we haven't seen what the riders and what a rider is for your listener, right? It's the language put in an appropriations bill that tries to constrain the policy abuses of the executive branch. So we'll see what we get, but I don't believe it's going to be that great. And I just don't understand how we can spend $60 billion over the Pelosi omnibus spending levels and pat ourselves on the back that we did something for the American people. We should have held the line. Literally, Brian, we go past a continuing resolution through September 30th, which is not my favorite way to do business. But if we did that, we would cut spending down to $1.562 trillion, which is $100 billion less. And it would leave defense untouched, it would leave veterans untouched, and it would cut the bureaucracy by $70 billion. I think that would be a win. I don't think this bill is a win. Uh, I, just, uh, just as the language, Johnson said on Sunday he intended to fight for the important policy riders in these measures. Freedom Caucus came out and said this is a total failure and totally unacceptable. Um, well, I mean, again, the NDAA yeah. riders, he, they said they'd fight for him. Go look at the bill. We got like a handful, but nothing great. I think that's what will happen here. But, of course, we don't have the language yet. Would you, but do you think they're going to move to oust him if uh, they sign off on this with Democratic votes? Because, of course, you'll probably you know, need I, him. I, you know, I always hate these conversations. I did not support uh, I the motion to vacate on Kevin McCarthy. Of I don't really want to go down that road now, but I'm going to tell you, I'm deeply disappointed in Mike, and I can tell you there are members talking about it. And, you know, it's not what we ought to be doing heading into a primary season, but passing this big bloated spending bill is also not what we should be doing. The American people expect us to deliver. They're tired of excuses. Democrats find a way in, in their razor-thin majorities to screw the American people with, like, reconciliation bills and pass massive Green New Deals. And we just sit around looking at each other going, well— I guess we need to just run and get more people elected so we can capitulate next year. So we need to do our job. We did a great job last year with HR2. We did a great job last year with the Limit Save Grow and putting caps in place. And we did a great job last year reopening the appropriations process. But now let's close the deal. Let's constrain the spending, get it done, and let's get the border security uh, uh, pact. Well, I think I might have lost you unless you bounce right back right now. Uh, you back there, Congressman? Yeah, I'm sorry. It's okay. I I will just tell you, I'm about to begin to break anyway. You're on television right now uh, from Sunday's event in uh, Grimes, Iowa. Uh, A handsome-looking vest back there, you and Tom Massey, uh, wearing the jeans, looking a little Iowan, uh, which is a lot like Texan. Uh, Thank you, Congressman. I know you got your hands full, but you're always taking a strong position. I appreciate it. Best of luck. We're going to find out in a week. We finally get some results. Yeah, God bless you, Brian. Thanks for having me on. All Take right, care. Uh, go get him, Congressman. 1-866-408-7669. When we come back, we went over a lot. Uh, what do you think? Brian Kilmeade Show. Newsmakers and newsbreakers. Hear it first on The Brian Kilmeade Show. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. 
Hey, welcome back. Chaos in New York City again. Thanks to these crazy lunatics who are protesting for Hamas and the Palestinian movement, which they knew nothing about. We're not even talking about before the massacre of Israelis. But protesters have pretty much stopped all traffic in the following locations. Williamsburg Bridge, Manhattan Bridge, Brooklyn Bridge, Holland Tunnel. And I know you're listening around the country and you probably... Uh, maybe don't have great feelings about New York, just know this. How many people are looking to deliver packages, food, looking to make a living to get in and out, have to get to work on time, have to get to a train, a subway, anywhere, and they're being stopped by a bunch of selfish people without jobs who obviously are being paid to do this. You're winning nobody over. They want to show that they're all over the globe. We are making sure the school curriculum changes. The NYPD is using saws to cut through some of the PVP, uh, PVC piping used to link themselves together. One of the protests began yelling for help as NYPD started sawing away. Of course, make you believe it's abuse. Uh, so there they are. They, they put themselves together. They fall on the ground. The pipes are sitting there. Then when you go to move one, you can't move them all. So they're getting saws. Can you believe this? You wonder why you don't want to be a cop. Now they can't even be used strong-arm tactics for the betterment of everybody else who wants to get to work, to get to school, to do their job. Incredible. Uh, and this is where you get. This is what these people do. And by the way, a lot of times it can be seen on social media. That's how they gather. That's how they communicate. It's not a mystery. We have to be able to head this off. And you got to put these people in jail. They're a public nuisance. You want to do this, you stay on the sidewalk and you make an ass of yourself that way. Josh Crashower is next. We'll talk about politics, talk about these two massive pieces of legislation that could be uh, right in front of Congress this week. So much going on. So glad you're here. The talk show that's getting you talking. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Joe Biden has been a good president in many ways. He's a he's a, a noble public servant. He's doing a lot of very good things. But he he is. People are worried about his age. He is 81 years old, and that worry is is only going to continue. You, you, everyone knows someone in their 80s and knows what is likely to happen. And by the way, so that's uh, Zanny Minton Bidos. Of uh, on CNN, uh, she is the editor in chief of the Economist. Hated to say what she said, but everybody knows it. So it's not a matter of well, I don't like this message. That's one thing. Uh, well, uh, Bill Clinton was trailing too. That's another thing. So was Barack Obama. Basically, thirty-eight percent approval rating is Joe Biden. So was, a, but the problem is those guys could actually work their way out of it, come up with a strategy, and try to win re-election. George Bush could do the same thing. Got it. Nobody thinks that Joe Biden can. And if he did, if he could, why would he not start? He speaks today. He spoke on Friday. Does anyone feel as though they're converted and feel better after hearing him speak? He doesn't go go into contentious interviews, doesn't come into press conferences, rarely. Josh Krashar joins us, Fox News Radio political analyst, editor-in-chief of the Jewish Insider. Josh, welcome back. Hey, Brian. Great to be back with you. You want to challenge anything from uh, the, the Economist editor? Well, look, he, he's going to an issue that's one of the few issues right now that Democrats have an advantage on when it comes to, to just political the, the political dynamic in 2024. It's the issue of January 6th, democracy, the view that among a lot of voters, Trump might be unfit for, for office. 
Um, the economy obviously didn't work as an issue. Bidenomics, you don't hear a whole lot about that, even though the economy is, I, I think, on the rise, doing better in the, in the eyes of some voters. Um, and you're certainly not seeing it on the border. You're not seeing it on crime. And, you know, all, all the issues that the Fox News poll tested and every other pollster has looked at, Democrats are behind. Uh, abortion, I guess, the other issue that Democrats have in their quiver. So, yeah, it's not, it's not a surprise that Biden's starting out his campaign in 2024, giving a speech in Valley Forge about democracy, about, about sort of the fundamentals of the country and not diving into the more contentious issues that have dri- driven his administration uh, crazy in trying to figure out ways to, to get things done, to pass bipartisan legislation and, and to deal with some of the, the nagging issues the country is facing. Well, essentially, they wasted $40 million over the summer selling Bidenomics. Uh, they actually lost ground on the economy. Number two is democracy, even Coming out and say democracy does not poll well because even Mitt Romney brought up that's going to be a loser. January 6th, you're already wearing people out with that. January 6th is turning into numbing people. Uh, they, everyone knows where they stand with this by now. You can't keep saying it every day. And my, my analogy is George W. Bush didn't walk around trying to get reelected on 9-11. He didn't say, wow, isn't that a terrible day? Isn't that a terrible day? Yes. It was worse than, obviously, January 6th. But... You don't want to hear it every day. What are you going to do in the next four years? What I think is interesting is what does poll is attacking Trump. That that polls well. I was shocked at the volume and level of anger. Essentially, he went full Hitler on Trump on Friday. Look, expect more more of that to come. I mean, if you can't win with your own record, and I think all you have to do is look at the, the, the president's job approval, hovering around, around 40 percent on average. That's not going to win you an election unless you disqualify your, your challenger. So expect a lot less Bidenomics or Biden this, Biden that, and expect a lot more early and, and very vitriolic negative attacks, uh, likely against Donald Trump. Uh, if he, certainly, if he, if he emerges uh, with the nomination in the next few months, you're going to be seeing a whole lot of advertising, a whole lot of negative messaging on your airwaves, and it's going to be continuous up until November. Absolutely. So here's Tony Gonzalez, somebody who's endorsing Trump, and he said, well, you know, January 6th was a bad day. I was there on the front lines. I didn't run. I went in front. I helped the cops out. But here's what he said. I think this is interesting. Cut four. I think back to the policies when President Trump was in was in office. And I think back to my district. We did not have the border crisis that we have now. We did not have the humanitarian turmoil. We did not have the chaos. That's the number one thing. In my district, our lives are turned upside down and we just want to get back to normal. It's the reason why you're seeing the polls say Hispanic Hispanic um, voters are no longer an automatic yes for the Democratic Party. What I mean by this is we just have to solve people's issues. And the issues in my district is the borders turned upside down. It's the reason why I hosted uh, Speaker Speaker Johnson and, and over 60 members of my colleagues on Wednesday. And it's the reason two days later I host my Democrat colleague, Don Davis, from North Carolina. I just want solutions. I think the American public also wants solutions. And, he, and George Stephanopoulos kept going back to, but he denied the election on January 6th. And I just thought that was the perfect contrast. You have somebody who goes, bad day, can't defend that, understood. He said he wasn't the cause of it, but the speech wasn't helpful, obviously. Uh, He could have got on the air sooner, understood. And it's still, I'm not sure that's going to matter, especially if it's already at a 10 in January. What do you think? I think you're right, Brian. I I will say this, though, and it's a cautionary tale for for the Republican Party in in 2024. Uh, One of the, the Republicans on one of the Sunday shows, Elise Stefanik, talked about, 
the people in jail for violent acts on January 6th as hostages. That's the type of rhetoric which I think she emulated from, from Donald Trump in a speech over the weekend that is going to – that could turn off the swing voters. That could turn off some of the people on the fence for 2024. So Tony Gonzalez is a, a pretty pragmatic, just constructive lawmaker. Probably if you talk to Republican leaders, he's one of the, the all-stars on Capitol Hill. But he's also facing a primary in his, in his race from the right who thinks he's not, not uh, right-wing enough, not conservative enough. So the key is that we've talked about this, this on the show, Brian, that you know Republicans can be their own worst enemies. They have a huge advantage. The fundamentals are pointing in their direction for 2024. But sometimes they could, you know, if, if they don't have the sort of quality control with some of the candidates or with some of the messages that they're putting out there, that's what could come back to bite them. So in a way, I think Biden, if, if you know, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. This is not, January 6th is, is an issue. It's not the issue that that, that the majority of voters rank as the most important. But if, if they're setting up traps for folks like Elise Stefanik or folks who are using more incendiary rhetoric to, to catch up with them and then to use that against them, that's a warning for Republicans. That's the kind of stuff that might – and I think Tony Gonzalez would say the same thing, that that's the kind of uh, stuff on, on Capitol Hill that can really backfire against Republicans. I say the same thing. I said hostages are ridiculous. Are some people overcharged? Sure. Did they well waste too many assets from the FBI pursuing this for the last three years? Sure. Um, um, were some people uh, charged wrongly? Yeah. But there was no way the hostages. It's a ridiculous comment. Uh, I, if I was President Trump, I wouldn't bring it up unless I'm asked in an interview. I would not bring it up in any speech. It's not worth bringing up in any speech. I would not open up a speech with them singing from prison. Uh, I think a practical way to do it is not to make fun of John McCain. It makes no sense. And fun, one thing, I thought he was a great guy and a wonderful American. I don't think it makes any sense to bring up stuff about the thumbs down Obamacare can lift his arms. But I do think that a lot of the policies that he put out there, Josh, here's the thing. When people look at Biden and Trump, they just say, you know, Trump, chaos and all these things. And then Biden is uh, stable and, you know, he's big green. The only thing they forget about is they never ask about the Trump policies. Just ask about the Trump policy. They think the bigger story is the personality. But if you look at the trade deals, you look at the tax reform, you look at the focus on the border, uh, you look at uh, the sense of getting NATO to pay more and all those things, that would be the better way to tell everybody that Trump is not good enough. That's exactly right. I mean, the, the, the sweet spot for Trump and what he should be saying and, 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 you know, he is – the campaign has done a pretty good job keeping him disciplined to keeping him on message. But you do see these moments at these rallies where he, he goes – does his thing and, and says things like hostages, says things about John McCain. And that, that, that's – you know, what, what the Biden campaign is doing basically is trying to, in, to make a sports metaphor. They're trying to blitz the whole – they're throwing every, every defensive player up against the quarterback and hoping he gets flustered and sticks. And clearly Trump has been shown, shown that he's – uh, you know, able, able to, you know, he'll throw some picks. He'll, he'll make mistakes, and he'll right. give Democrats the opportunity to use against him in, in a campaign ad or uh, for their rapid response teams. So that's that's the play. Like, they, they, I don't think if this is fought on just if, if, if the Trump campaign is out responding to what the Biden campaign is saying, you know, I think they play it to a draw. But if Trump says things above and beyond what anyone on his campaign is saying, and it, it, whether it's about John McCain, whether it's about calling the host, you know, prisoners of January yeah. 6th hostages, that is where the Biden campaign is hoping to draw him off size, to draw, try him uh, into a mistake that could hurt him politically. So uh, the, the Washington Post had the story on the 6th that President Obama is worried about, uh, worried about Trump, and he's urging the Biden inner circle to bolster their campaign. Uh, he says he's raised questions about the structure of Biden's reelection campaign. He discussed the matter directly with Biden, telling the president's aides, and allies, the campaign needs to empower to empower people to make decisions without clearing them with the White House. 
He says he grew animated in discussing this and saying Donald Trump has potential to return to power and suggested to Biden's advisors that the campaign needs more top-level decision-makers overall, and he has long harbored worries about Trump's political strength. He thinks they're underestimating uh, Trump's popularity, and Obama sees it clearly. I know there's so many agendas wrapped up in that story becoming public. See through it with me, Josh. Yeah, I mean, first of all, for all the Democrats who think that Demo- anonymous Democratic operatives are you know, bedwetting or worried unnecessarily about Biden's political standing, well, now you have to point to President Obama, who, who is also worried, who also is alarmed about the state of the campaign and the state of where, where Biden stands right now. So it's harder to – for Jim Messina, who's sort of the lead Democratic voice, saying, kind of dismissing the criticism and concerns from, from leading Democratic officials that really he doesn't have much of a leg to stand on when, when Obama is saying the same thing. I also think that the, the, the criticism, you know, only goes so far because Obama was a different. I mean, he was a much more nimble and much more charismatic politician than Joe Biden. And you're, you're going to run a different playbook when you're Obama and when and when you're Biden. So he's not Biden is not going to get the base energized. He's going to have to rely on Trump, sort of getting the base out for him on his behalf. It's not going to be the same when Bo- Obama's charisma and uh, talent and energy is going to automatically, organically get Democratic voters to the polls and get historic turnout among. Democratic voters. It's a different environment. It's a different candidate. So I think like Obama wanting Biden to kind of Im- imitate his playbook is, is is a little flawed. I also think that, look, um, I think the one thing that is structural that is, is going to raise a lot of eyebrows in Washington is, you know, he's basically saying that the top talent isn't at the White House, is not at the campaign headquarters. And they're going to need to bring some some senior voices, some people with experience. You mentioned David Plouffe. Who I don't Biden and Plouffe don't don't have the warmest of relationships, but I think that, that there are plenty of people in the White House that are sharp politically that would be wise to move. Like Jen O'Malley, Jen O'Malley Dillon is, is is one of the big political operatives in the White House. Like it right. would make a lot of sense organizationally to have the top talent, the, the brains in Wilmington rather than you know focused on government and policy in Washington. So Elisa Slotkin, Elisa Slotkin, who wants to be the next senator in that open seat in Michigan says uh, she doesn't th- – there's a chance that they cannot win that seat and other contentious seats with Biden at the top of the ticket. Josh, you got great context from the Democratic Party. Is that beyond a whispering campaign? Oh, yeah. I mean, look, the, the reality is that if Republicans take the House or hold the House, I guess, and then, then they should have a good chance of winning the Senate. It, it, but the House is going to kind of rest on Trump. Trump might have coattails in some of these districts where he lost in – 2020, but it could win in 2024. And uh, if anything, like a good good Republican year could actually sweep Republicans down ballot in, into Congress because Trump wins an election and does it decisively. So that's that's a very that's a very plausible outcome. And uh, frankly, Trump has got more juice than some of these congressional Republican candidates. Uh, so that that is a possible yeah. dynamic. And if you're if you're in Michigan, by the way, Alyssa Slotkin. I mean, she looked like she was in great shape like six months ago, and now the Democratic Party is divided, especially in that state, on the issue of Israel. She's trying to have it both ways. She's not getting – she's alienating both both the Arab Americans and Jewish Americans by trying to have some muddled position on, on, on a very moral issue like that. And she's, she's finding her polling. Biden's down you know, by, by quite a bit in Michigan right now, and that's not going to help any Democrat on, on the bottom of that ballot. And Mike Rogers is strong. You know, he, he is so formidable, but not necessarily a dynamic speaker, but he knows his stuff. He's got respect on both sides of the aisle. He's not anti-Trump, but he's not pro-Trump. So it's not like you can just say that he is uh, Tudor Dixon, who I have lack of respect for, but she was synonymous with Trump. I think Rogers might have more of the right mix. Yeah, that is the key. Republicans have actually done on the Senate side a really good job 
of getting good candidates who are conservative or pro-Trump, but not uh, undisciplined, that don't take radical positions. And Mike, Ro- Mike Rogers has to get through a primary. That's going to be a test in Michigan. you got Dave McCormick, who I think is an excellent candidate in Pennsylvania, running against Bob Casey. you got Sam Brown. I mean, you got a lot of good recruits that Republicans have who are trying to hit that sweet spot, and they're supporting Trump, but they also have their own independent views on issues, and they, they, they certainly are different personality-wise. And that, that is going to be the key for the Senate Republicans, like kind of getting that Trump juice and benefiting from the, be- the turnout and the energy that he brings to the table, but also right. having their own brand and their own individual campaigns. How big of a deal is his Secretary of Defense, Austin? Is he is he going to lose his job? Should he? Well, boy, this is a – I don't think it's gotten enough attention. I mean, this is a guy who uh, I guess he had a, a routine surgery. They had some complications. He was hospitalized and didn't tell anyone. Didn't tell the president. Didn't tell anyone at the NSC. Didn't tell – uh, I guess the deputy was also sick and didn't didn't get informed about I mean, this is a, a very serious scandal at a time when we're facing – uh, the war in the Middle East and, 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 and Russia and Ukraine. I mean, it, it's kind of hard to imagine the leader of the Pentagon is asleep at the wheel uh, because of the, the, the hospitalization. And he's still, we still don't know, by the way, what he's suffering from. And he is still, as I understand it, is still hospitalized. So there's been very little transparency out of the Pentagon. And boy, if this was happening, this would be a, a serious chain of command. I mean, I, I can imagine the headlines if Trump was president and you didn't have I know. a secretary of defense uh, in, 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 in place and no one knew about it. I mean, it, it, is, it is a scandal, and right. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about it. Josh, I hate now. to do that, and I said, swore we were going to do that, but it's just so obvious. Can you imagine if Trump was president and you had mayors calling, having war between the states? We have basically the mayor of New York suing Texas and the mayor of Chicago condemning the governor of Texas and – uh, the uh, Austin, you know, uh, we have uh, the same thing with Arizona, Louisiana. We're watching this war because the president won't step up at the border. They would be saying that this is happening under Trump and we're returning to the Civil War era. But they're just giving him a total pass. It just it just the double standard. I wish it was even close, uh, but it's just so obvious. I'm not saying Trump was playing the perfect game by any stretch, but the the blowing up of small stories into big ones Really, uh, I think it was detrimental to the country. Josh, I'll talk to you again soon. Appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. We're going to come back. Going to finish up the hour. Going to give you the latest on those uh, blockings of major arteries in New York City by these pro-Palestinian Hamas protesters in just a moment. Brian Kilmeade Show. Giving you everything you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. He's so busy, he'll make your head spin. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome back. And as you know, we came on after a football doubleheader. Uh, The big difference between the Golden Globes and the NFL, on the Golden Globes, we have fewer camera shots of Taylor Swift. (laughs) This guy, guy, I never heard of him. Have you you guys heard of him? It's like uh, Coy or whatever his name is. He's the host, Joe Coy. And he was he bombed, but he just disavowed every joke he said even before he finished it. And a lot of people weren't laughing, so he went crazy. Uh, even though there were enough laughs, you could have just powered through it. But it just goes to show you these award shows seem to be the death to the MC. So nobody wants to do it, so they pick some unknowns. Uh, he went after Taylor Swift, and she just looked annoyed, and that bothered everybody. Uh, just a quick note. Remember I told you about what's happened in New York City, the bridges and tunnels throughout at 940. They started blocking the Holland Tunnel, uh, the Manhattan Bridge, the Williamsburg Bridge. 
And uh, it stayed there really barked for two, about 200 protests for about three hours. They finally cleared it at 1130, all in the name of Hamas and the Palestinians. What an embarrassment. You think you're winning anyone over? You're not. Quick announcement. Thanks to everyone that get Teddy and Booker T and keep selling. Thanks so much. I'm going to be on stage at the Rialto Square Theater in Joliet, Illinois. Uh, it's going to be streamed live at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, Eastern Time. Uh, I hope to see everybody there. From there, I'm going to go to New Hampshire. For, I'm going to do primary coverages, and we'll have the radio show there, too, on Monday and Tuesday. But I hope to see everybody there in person. Uh, BrianKilme.com to go get tickets or Ticketmaster. Uh, and there's VIP opportunities, too. Brian Kilme Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.